Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Udhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami I've been asked to speak on two subjects this evening. Uh, one was a question about the uh, place of frustration in practice or how to deal with frustration. And the other one was the, the value or meaning of traditions. And in my mind, these these two matters go together, so I'm happy to spend some time contemplating them this evening. Some years ago, I was conducting a meeting where there was a period of questions and answers, and Somebody asked the question, what is the place of koans in Buddhism? Referring to the, the Zen uh, meditation technique of giving people a, a koan to meditate on. And I responded by saying that a koan was an was a intentional act of strategic frustration and everybody everybody thought that was very funny and I was surprised that people thought that was funny because as far as I was concerned it was a perfectly accurate description of what a koan was it's an intentional act of strategic frustration it's you're given this absolutely impossible question to ponder on specifically designed to frustrate the superficial level of mental activity that tries to answer things with a simplistic logic and by so doing, so doing encourage a deepening of inquiry our real problems in life our real issues are, are not usually superficial ones the, the deep questions that we all have and deep mysteries and and yet to ask our own deep questions is not so easy our attention readily seems to flit around on, on the surface of things and our attention is easily distracted by superficial concerns of, about getting what I want and being liked or not being disappointed or recovering from some disappointment or so on and hoping the weather's going to be nice and knowing very well we've got no control over these things and not wanting to get old knowing very well we're going to get old get sick and die and and these very mediocre superficial concerns can occupy us totally 
And yet there are deeper questions. What is the meaning of life? What's important anyway? What really matters? What is the meaning? What is, what is truth? What is love? What is reality? What is self? What is the actual nature of self, this perception of meanness? What really is it? Because this matter of meanness is, is incredibly important. I, I invest pretty much most of my energy in looking after me. It's that important. And this me seems to clash with other me's who think they're equally important or more important. So this me is a major issue and yet what is it? And that's not an easy question to really look into. We can read about it and get philosophical opinions, perspectives on it. But the actuality of meanness, what is it that that gives rise to that furious energy that flares up when when I don't get my way. Who is it that doesn't get his way? Anyway. Can't be the same character that when he's sitting in meditation feels totally contented and sometimes at ease and loving everybody all over the place and it must, can't be the same person that, that wants to do something terrible. So what is it? How do we ask that question? Well, the Buddhist perspective is we've got to we've got to listen deeply. We've got to deepen within ourselves beyond the superficial concerns of getting what we want and or dealing with the disappointment of not getting what we want to that place where the actual structures of meanness are configured within our psyche, within our consciousness, within our minds, within our hearts. These, what the Buddhists talk about is the patterns of clinging. These patterns of clinging have been established very early on in our life and compounded every time we follow our tendencies of demanding to get our own way and so they have been very compounded, contracted and seriously well established. And we can't get in there and look into it without really going deep within ourselves. And so a, a lot of the encouragement in practice is finding ways of encouraging and letting us ask these important questions within ourselves. And so the koan, as I was suggesting on this occasion, is a is a uh, a technique for frustrating our our minds, giving up, letting go of the superficial concerns, the activity of the linear logical mind, and deepening to a place, going to a place within ourselves where we can we can feel the great doubt about life, that that great inner ache that is really the source of all religious aspiration. 
we can attend to it, we can engage it, we can meet it. And so frustration in the terms of, of, a, of a koan can serve that purpose, but also um, we can approach frustration, all frustrations in our life, in the same way. In other words, we don't have to perceive frustration as, an, as something going wrong. Of course, there is a perspective on life whereby you know, frustration is obviously a symptom of something going wrong. If, if Tanabinando is trying to get people on the volunteer workday to put the insulation up on the roof and all they want to do is drink tea, then he can feel frustrated. And, or if they put the wrong sort of insulation in because somebody gave him the, the wrong manual, which is what happened, and he employs all his volunteers to put all his insulation up, and nasty insulation stuff that it was too, put it all up because somebody gave him the wrong manual, and he finds that out, and he can feel frustrated. Well, there's an understandable level of feeling frustrated, but and that, of course, one has to deal with and get the right manual next time. But from a, a practice perspective, and it's important that we have a practice perspective in our life, is when we feel frustrated, it's not some sense of something ultimately going wrong. It's a relative something going wrong. And we don't always see that. When I get frustrated, I can sometimes feel like this is absolutely wrong, this is utterly wrong, it really shouldn't be this way. It really, really shouldn't be this way. Well, that's a lack of perspective. and So our practice encourages us to develop the kind of watchfulness, the kind of watchfulness, the kind of attention that means that when I'm not getting my way, we don't just assume, we don't jump to the conclusion that this is some sort of ultimate condition of something going wrong. It appears that way, yes, but what's really going on with frustration? What's really going on? What is the reality of frustration? So we can take it, in fact, as an invitation to look into our whole relationship to wanting, because that's what frustration is, when I don't get what I want. When I don't get what I want, I feel frustrated. And the central core of uh, Buddha's teaching, the Four Noble Truths, is, of, as we all know, the investigation into the inquiry into the, the nature of our relationship with wanting, with desire. Yeah. Through not seeing desire, we keep getting caught up in it, we mistake it for being something that it's not. We, we Over and over again we think that when desire arises, we think if we grasp it, then we get what we want, then we'll be happy. And time and time again we've all been through it. We, Desire comes up and we grasp it and we do get what we want and we're momentarily gratified but we're not satisfied. There's a world of difference between gratification of desire and satisfaction because our momentary gratification is soon replaced with the momentum of wanting which in fact just, just a little bit has been increased by our having followed our desire. So the Buddha doesn't come down with some sort of heavy judgment and said, thou shalt not want anything, or desire is wrong. 
but rather that there's a cause and effect relationship here that we need to look into. And the obvious metaphor that's often used is that desire is like fire, because it feels like fire, I want. And that heat flares up, the heat of the passions flare up. And just as if we grasp, put our hand in the fire and grasp something hot, we get burnt, so it is. The Buddha said that if we grasp desire out of ignorance, thinking that by so doing we're going to be happy, we actually create ourselves suffering, we create problems. So frustration can be used as a, if we approach it skillfully, as an invitation to deepen our inquiry into desire, wanting. That's, that's. I don't know how quite how this relates to those of you living the householder's life, but certainly for the monastic life, this is very much what our life is all about. Giving up food in the evening is not a moral statement about eating in the evening. It's it's to frustrate us. Giving up sex is not a moral statement of responsible sexual relationships. It's a, it's a frustration. Giving up going out to operas and shows and clubbing and so on is not, it's not a moral statement about opera or shows or clubs. It's, it's a frustration strategy. It's a koan. It's, an, it's a specifically designed structure that will intentionally frustrate the momentum of me seeking my way. The understanding behind that is that this momentum of me seeking my way is the cause of all the trouble. It's the cause of all the trouble. When I don't get my way, I react with anger or fear, something negative and painful, which I inflict either on myself or on others. So over and over again, in skillful, kindly, patient ways, the Buddha encourages it, well, whatever it takes come around to getting interested in the nature of desire. This is so a lifestyle like this, the monastic lifestyle, and and a place like this, a lifestyle that means that that people can live this way for a whole lifetime, is really predicated on this understanding. The, The renunciate lifestyle is about this. It's a way of accessing energy. Many people think that that renunciation is uh, something to do with morality. Renunciation has nothing to do with morality. The precepts, the moral precepts, deal with moral issues. The renunciation precepts deal with actually identifying those places where we, we become needlessly distracted in life. needlessly distracted in life. The Buddha didn't proscribe monks and nuns from from eating enough food to live healthily, as you'll observe a lot of the monks here are you know, just even tending on a little bit overweight. Uh, <laughs> we thank you very much, we eat very well, and the Buddha said we can eat in the mornings, but in the evening you don't have to eat. Now, you still tend to want to eat in the evening. What do you do when you want to eat in the evening? You can distract yourself by reading a novel or something. Or, or you can turn the attention around and feel wanting. Wanting. And the encouragement is to actually note the feeling, note the sensation, and watch it. Wanting. Wanting to eat. Now, if that desire, if that movement of desire wasn't frustrated, 
<coughs> by the renunciation precept of not eating in the evening, then we probably wouldn't be all that inclined. We just, if it was me anyway, I'd just go out and eat something. Yeah. Open the fridge and pull out something yummy and get rid of that feeling of wanting to eat. Not because I needed food, but it's a habit or a distraction. Well, likewise, the, the tendency to distract ourselves from from painful feelings. They're living the celibate renunciate life is the inevitable tendency to get caught in the feeling of loneliness, feeling lonely, uh, unloved, uncared for, unappreciated. Then the memories of previous occasions in one's life when one, one felt loved and appreciated and the warmth of intimacy and friendship can come up in the mind. And you, If you're heedless, you can start dwelling on these thoughts and, and trying to distract yourself from the pain but actually it only makes the mind more confused and increases the fire of wanting. The wise contemplation that's encouraged in practice that feeling lonely and unhappy and not being able to fill up that hole, that feeling of lacking with food, which is which would be a, a normal distraction. The encouragement, the wise reflection that's given is to feel a feeling of wanting intimacy, feel a feeling of wanting to be appreciated, wanting to be loved. The awareness, the capacity of knowing in our hearts and minds has within it the potential to receive the pain of loneliness. And when there is a receptivity, an accurate receptivity, a non-judgmental receptivity to the pain of loneliness, something happens, a change in the relationship to that pain happens. There's a loosening around. It's not that contraction, not that fighting, not that trying to get rid of that was producing so much suffering. And when the suffering ceases, well, then there's no need for a distraction anymore. One doesn't have to go and eat or watch television or read a novel or go out clubbing or doing a lot of these other things if the pain's not there to distract ourselves from. In fact, there's a contentment in its place. So the function of these structures or lifestyles based on the principles of renunciation is to help us direct attention towards the reality of wanting. And this principle can be applied in all aspects of our life, whether it's as a monastic or as a householder, when feeling frustrated, there is the opportunity to feel a feeling of frustrated when I don't get my way. Standing in the supermarket line. Just, you know, these people in front of you fussing around and uh, holding you up, and you're standing thinking, I've only got a few items, why can't they just hurry up? Why can't they open more queues? so I can get through quicker. What sort of supermarket is this anyway? Why can't they have just queues just for baskets, handheld baskets? Why don't they open one of those queues? And your mind can whinge and whine. And, mm. Or if you're having a, a boring telephone conversation with, with somebody who rings you up and just goes on and on and on and doesn't seem to be talking about anything important and 
you could get a little assertive and just say, look, I, my, my time's too important to waste listening to you right now. Why don't you, you know, sort out your problems, get a life, leave me alone. And hang up on them, only to find out later that actually they, they were seriously in need of being listened to. That's all they needed was to be listened to. All of us need that at some stage in our life. And we may not even know what our problem is. We may not even know what it is that's causing us to suffer. But just to have somebody receive us and listen to us can be, can be a huge support. But if we in our frustration and attachment to getting our own way, say, well, I want to go and finish that, that book I was reading or you interrupted my television program. I'm not getting my way. I feel frustrated. You telephoning me up with your trivial problem. We have the choice. If we have a, a mindful, careful, sensitive appreciation of the activity, the dynamic of frustration, that is me not getting my way, we can practice with that. We can sit there. The telephone conversation may be tedious from your perspective, from somebody else. You may just be that compassionate ear that saves them from something very unpleasant. Whatever the other person's business is, our business is to practice and to feel the feeling of frustration. And, and we can practice in the body, sitting there with the telephone in your ear. You can sit up straight. You don't have to slouch and, and yawn and, and get bored with you sit up straight, feel the energy in the body, hold the telephone to the ear and and breathe and if even with the feeling of I don't want to be here, one can feel the feeling of I don't want to be here, I don't want to be doing this, one can feel it. And that's practice. The mindfulness, the awareness that feels the feeling I don't want to be here doing this, I don't want that mindfulness, that awareness that's actually our identity. If we want to know what our identity is, it's not something we can abstract out of and look down on and grasp or identify with. But when we let go of becoming caught up in our liking and disliking, our wanting and not wanting, and just simply be aware, we can find a contentment, an ease, and a sensitivity, and Sometimes, quite miraculously, uh, a natural understanding arises. How did we get there? How did we get to that deeper place beyond our preferences? Well, frustration was the teacher, actually. And so for many people who suffered the, the regrettable, unfortunate frustration of sickness, many people have, have spoken about how even people who are terminally ill have spoken about how grateful they are for what they've been through because it was an ultimate frustration of everything that I hold dear where I can't get my way at all anymore and so I am encouraged painfully but really to let go of everything and as our teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, when you let go a little, you have a little peace. When you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. When you let go completely, you have complete peace. And how is it that we learn how to let go? Well, there's sometimes we can be inspired to let go, but more often than not, the path of practice that 
that leads us to letting go is the one of frustration when we simply feel the pain of holding on then letting go happens sometimes people say I'm trying to let go all the time I just can't let go well actually this I that's trying to let go is just a complex pattern of hanging on I can't really let go however when we turn the light of attention around and we inquire into this whole dynamic of me trying to get my way all the time, me following my desires, my wants, my not wanting, when we turn the light of attention around and look at this, a shift happens and letting go happens naturally. It's not I letting go at all, letting go happens. So running through this contemplation on frustration and of desire, hopefully encouraging us all that when we, when we are in situations where we're not getting our own way, this is, we've got a choice. We could just react and follow our mental tendencies and emotional reactions to not getting our own way and we've each got our own kind of conditioned programming that we received early on in life. We imitate our parents and things they used to do when they didn't get their way and so on. Or we can exercise the choice to inquire into what's really going on, and feel it in the body, inhibit the tendencies to react, and witness another possibility. Now as far as the matter of religious traditions and goes, in my mind, as I said in the beginning, this is very linked into this matter because to live a lifestyle that is based on inquiring into this possibility um, does inevitably involve structures and that's what religions are about, surely. There's a, a core teaching and then there are Structures, conventions that that grow up to contain that teaching, to carry that teaching forward. And in the Buddhist teachings, the, the Buddha certainly laid down many, many uh, guidelines for how to live one's life. And the Eightfold Path that that we're all familiar with, and particularly that aspect of which talks about right speech, right action, right livelihood. And, the guidelines that were given, the things that, the things that accord with the lifestyle, the actions that accord with the likelihood of new understanding, increased awareness. There are things that we can do that actually obstruct this awareness, this understanding. There are things we can do that enhance the possibility of it arising. And then in the, the level of the moral precepts, uh, refraining from killing and stealing and deceitfulness and so on. These, these are, are guidelines that are given not as decrees or commandments, but guidelines that are given so as to help and support the spirit of the practice. The forms are there to support the spirit of the practice. Now sometimes it happens, in fact inevitably it happens sooner or later in all organizations that, that, that the form dominates and the spirit is made subservient to the form and, 
at which point it all becomes rather pointless and sometimes you can get indignant and when, you, when the form is being overemphasized and the spirit is forgotten. Sometimes, however, it's, it's because we ourselves can't see beyond the form. If we have been conditioning, programming our senses to be focused on, on that which is purely sensual, the realm of the senses and the material world and the indulging in the pleasures and pains, allowing ourselves to become lost in the joys and sorrows of the sensual world, then even though you may be in a situation where where the spirit is evident to others, we ourselves may not see it. Again, we could we could easily dismiss practices and gestures thinking that they're pointless and just the same as maybe the some of the um, I can imagine I, I, I haven't heard of it but I can imagine say maybe some of the early British missionaries who went to China saw people practicing Tai Chi and and they, they thought these people were in some sort of crazy state of mind throwing their arms and legs around all over the place or completely misperceived what was going on whereas these days uh, many people are, are practicing Tai Chi having come to see that the point of Tai Chi is not the direction in which you or the shape in which you throw your arms and legs around but the energy that is enabled the, and the way the energy the Chi flows through the system and the, the, the beneficial results of that energy that's the point that's the spirit the form is there to serve the spirit, not the spirit to serve the form. However, sometimes organizations, religions, communities lose that perspective and form becomes all there is to it and then basically it's run its lifetime. But sometimes, as I was saying, it's also the case that we ourselves simply can't see the spirit. We don't recognize the spirit. And I myself would suggest that, that when we come across uh, you know, different traditions, that we withhold our assumptions about the forms that are used because all of them are basically built on something that is meaningful. That's how they got to be created in the first place. And, and it can take a while for us to recognize them. And in the Buddhist teaching, the, the, the teachings, the guidelines, the, the structures are there to help support the cultivation of an awareness which eventually comes to recognize directly for ourselves what's actually going on in our relationship with desire. Desire is the point. And the Buddha said over and over again on many occasions, is, I teach two things. I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. And what is suffering? What is, you could have said, I teach frustration and the cessation of frustration. This word dukkha. The Buddha said, I teach dukkha and the ending of dukkha. Dukkha can be accurately translated as frustration, trouble, pain, dis-ease, unsatisfactoriness. And so whatever guidelines have been given, we can take them as being an encouragement and a support for us 
to come to that point where we become intimately familiar with what it is that we do, what it is that we do that is creating the frustration. Life is endless change. Life is not frustrating. We are the ones that are creating the frustration. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much for your attention.